0: How are we? Upper room fellowship. Good. Looking looking good today. Really good. Might be a little creepy. Uh it's good to be here. I love Sundays. I love being here. It isn't this building. I love being here with you guys. Um, how does that happen at a church? That's not supposed to happen at a church, I don't think, but uh, it's great to be here. And uh we're we're not gonna be starting any new sermon series until a couple weeks after Easter. So that means I we have a few weeks to just kind of talk about whatever we want. So so I figured that I would hit a few topics that uh, maybe maybe aren't the easiest topics to hit, but are topics that that we think are important. So today we're going to talk about politics. Yeah, it's going to be fun. <laughs> what is going on today? All right. The next few weeks we're going to hit uh, singleness. We're going to hit women in ministry and. Uh, something else. I have it written down. I can't remember right now, but it's something else is going to be good But today. Politics. Election. We're going to have to throw, this. Going to throw this whole section out of here. It's getting crazy. So real quick, let's do a little survey. Everybody gets to play along. How many of you are honest, even though this might be the m- minority, how many of you are actually enjoying the drama and the chaos associated with the presidential election? Yeah? Maybe just a little bit. Good. All right. How many of you can't wait for this thing to be over? Yeah. That's what I was afraid of. Okay. How many of you would say, I I can't stand it? Maybe I'd just say, I hate it. I hate it whenever the subject of politics comes up around the dinner table or in a social gathering and just get nervous inside a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about this? How many of you have watched all the debates? Ooh. Yeah. All right. Americans. Good. How many of you have watched at least some of the debates? Okay. Anybody here who's like, debates? There's debates. <laughs> All right. Now, here's here's the most personal question. I promise I won't get any more personal. I'm not, I'm not going to list candidates. But how many of you have already made up in your mind who you would vote for if your person, if the person you want to vote for is actually the nominee? Anybody? Less than half. Okay, so you already got your sights set on something. Okay, last question. Who thinks that churches and preachers in particular should stay away from all things splitter? Anybody? Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. With you. So, uh, before we get into this, I just want to say, I've watched some of the debates. I'm not confident that any of those cats are our savior. Um, I'm fairly certain none of them are. My My hope is not... In America being great again. Although I, I want to be a good citizen, I want to participate. I do believe the grace of God is profound on the United States in how we've been able to, to function these last couple hundred years. Uh but I'll tell you this, we are not the hope of the world. I'm uh I'm just trying to get across that I don't have an agenda here. Alright, I have my guy, that's Jesus. Alright, I'm I'm gonna vote, but my hope is not in any person. All right. So what I want to do today, I want to issue a challenge. And my challenge isn't to everybody, although everybody can certainly play, but my challenge is to those of you who are Christians. What I want to challenge you to do is, I want to challenge you between now and November the 8th uh, to put your faith ahead of your politics. To be a Christ follower first and a Republican second. To be a Christ follower first and be a Democrat second. All right. To be a Christ follower first and a Libertarian or Independent or Socialist second. All right. Would you place your political views below your Christian values. Because, let's face it, for no other reason, nobody goes to Washington, D.C. when they die. Right? I mean, that's just reason enough. Okay? So as, as important as all this is, and as amped up as we can get about political things, at the end of the day, you know intuitively there are more important things. And at the end of the day, your faith really is more important. Now, here's what I'm not saying, so you don't Shut us off too early. I'm not saying don't have an opinion. Okay, You should have an opinion. It's okay for you men to continue to yell at your televisions. Right? You, you just go right ahead and do that. I'm not suggesting you stop doing that. I'm not suggesting that we should all agree. And I'm not suggesting that all Christians should vote for any particular candidate or that all, all Christians should lean into one party. All I'm saying is I'm challenging you to put your faith, your convictions ahead of your, ahead of your politics because ultimately as Christians we belong to a higher kingdom the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world may conflict sometimes and maybe you would argue that and you would say well chris the reason i'm a republican is because i'm a christian or or chris the reason i'm a democrat is because of my faith i mean come on jesus was a he was a health care dispensing machine you know everywhere he went he dispensed health care for free so i'm a democrat the point is this, when it comes to putting your faith before your politics, it's not enough to say, "Well, Bible first and politics second." That doesn't work because no matter where you stand politically, you can find something in the Bible that supports your stand. So so Jesus did not come to take anybody's side. He he didn't come to take sides; he came to take over. All right? And yet for some reason, when it comes to the political season, we all try to we're all trying to reel Jesus in to support our political views but but simply trying to find something that Jesus said to support what you believe politically is not enough, all right? So so I want to look at what Jesus did uh, and how he responded when he was asked about his political stance, all right? Let's see what he supported. So let's go to Mark 12 If you have your Bibles, Mark 12:13 through 17. <clears throat> and this says It says later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, so very interesting scripture. Uh, The Pharisees and the Herodians who asked this question are opposites on the political spectrum. So the Herodians were supporters of Roman power, and the Pharisees weren't. (laughs) What they're trying to do is they're trying to smoke Jesus out. They're trying to get him to come down on one side or the other. right? They're trying to say, what are your politics, Jesus? What's your your political persuasion? What party are you a member of? And it's important to kind of understand the background, to understand really what the question is that's being asked here. Um, The tax they're asking about, it's not... Taxes in general. It's a particular tax. Uh, you can say you can say see that they say it was the imperial tax. Uh, it wasn't a tax on your goods or property or anything like that. The tax they were asking Jesus about was a specific tax for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. And it was a very small tax. So this tax was very symbolic. What I mean by that is that, that when you pay the tax, you were saying, I submit to Caesar. I'm a subject of Caesar's kingdom. If you don't, if you didn't pay the imperial tax, it was symbolic that you disassociated with the kingdom of Caesar. 25 years or so before this time, when the tax was instituted, there was an armed revolt. Uh, it was led by a man named Judas the Galilean. When Judas the Galilean led the revolt, here's what he did. He did two things. First, with an armed group of followers, he went and he cleansed the temple. He got rid of all the foreigners. He threw out all the Gentiles and Romans. Secondly, he called on all Jews to refuse to pay the imperial, imperial privilege tax. He was tracked down, arrested, and executed. Now, it's 25 years later, and you see what is happening. First of all, Jesus has he's built his entire teaching around this kingdom of God, not Caesar's kingdom. He's been talking about the kingdom of God for years. Secondly, he has just cleansed the temple. He had just thrown out the money changers and the animal sellers. So now they come, and the, the, you see what they're asking. There's one thing missing, one part missing to this political revolt, and that is, what do you think of the imperial tax? So there's a trap, right? On one hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's calling for a revolt. This has happened before, and now the authorities have a precedent to end this revolt. He won't just be unpopular, he'll be crushed. If he says, yes, do pay the tax, then everybody who has been hearing him talk about the kingdom of God will think he's a fake. Here's the reason why. One of the things you have to realize is when we kind of read about the kingdom of God, what do you, what do you think of the kingdom of God as being? When you think about the kingdom of God, we kind of, I think we kind of spiritualize it. We say something like, well, the kingdom of God means, you know, God lives in my heart and brings me peace, or, or something. Um, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, when he quotes the Old Testament prophets about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God was not just an inner spiritual thing. The Bible tells us the kingdom of God was gonna, was gonna deal with real poverty and real injustice and real suffering and real hunger. So Jesus invokes that whenever he talks about the kingdom of God. So Jesus has been, he's been teaching this kingdom of God and he says, if he says, you know, just, oh, go ahead, pay the privilege tax, subject yourself to Caesar's kingdom, just be nice, law-abiding citizens, then he loses his authority. Then everybody's going, Where's the power of the kingdom of God? If he says, yes, pay the tax, he'll lose the people. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, he'll be crushed by the authorities. Tight spot. What they're asking him is, are you a revolutionary bringing the kingdom of God? You see the spot that he's in? His answer is amazing. It says they were amazed because Jesus' answer is not no answer. They go yes or no, one side or the other. He does not say yes or no, and he doesn't say just say, sure. He doesn't just say, no way. He doesn't do what they asked him to do, which is give a nice, simple, yes or no answer. When uh, I'll say it this way. Jesus never gives us simple answers to complex questions. This is something that I'm learning more and more. It is even, it's even more, more than that even. The Bible does not give us simple answers to complex issues. When Jesus talks about a relationship with him, he's very clear. When he talks about our relationship with the world, and politics and those sorts of things, he doesn't give the simple black and white answer. This is a great example. He gives these guys a balanced answer, a nuanced answer. They want a nice simple, you know, yes or no. Which party are you in? He won't do it. He resists simplifying. He resists being put in a box. How does he do that? Well, he asks for a denarius, uh, a denarius we know a lot about because we have them around. Um, they're in museums. We actually have a there's a picture of one. There's Caesar there. He's got a long neck. Um, it's a it's a silver coin, right? And he says, Jesus takes this denarius and he says, Whose image is on it? Whose inscription's on it? The image that is on it is Tiberius Caesar. The inscription was, we're on the outside there, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Jesus holds up a coin that says, King Son of God, high priest. What does he say about the coin? First of all, he says, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. What's that mean? He's implying, give to Caesar only that which has his image on it. Anything with his image on it, give it to him. It's his. They're his coins, it's his coinage. Literally, by the way, it was his money. It literally was minted out of his wealth. It's his money. Give it to him because his image is on it but give God what has his image on it, and that's you. When Jesus said that, he was doing a couple of things. First of all, this is the very first theory of limited government in the history of the world. Uh, Every government has always said, we're the choice of the gods, so we have absolute authority. You can't question us. Jesus says, don't you dare give any government that. What Jesus is saying is you may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is to completely accept his system. His system of coercion, his system of injustice, his system system of exclusion. He wants ultimate allegiance. He wants no one to sit in judgment on him, but we can't give him that. Jesus is saying something revolutionary, but nobody could say Jesus had forbidden the payment of these taxes either. He's saying something really different. He says, I'm a revolutionary, but not the kind of revolutionary you've ever seen before. He won't let his followers drop out of the political process or see the political process as the only or or main way with which to deal with injustice. Jesus will not give up on this idea of the kingdom of God. He says there's an authority of God over Caesar. There's a kingdom of God coming. I'm bringing the kingdom of God, but not in the way you think. What do I mean by that? Well... How does Jesus get this thing started, right? He asks, he asks for a denarius. Why does Jesus ask for a denarius? Because he doesn't have one, right? He doesn't reach in his pocket and pull out a denarius and say, look at this denarius. He has to ask for one. The denarius was not a big amount of money at all, and yet Jesus doesn't have one. A king with no money versus a king with all the money. He's bringing a different concept of kingship. The best way to understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is to go to a place in Luke, Luke 6. Luke six, twenty through 26. Jesus says, <clears throat> Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets." If you notice, Jesus takes four values. He repeats them in both both parts there. Those four values are the dividing line between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. Those four values are power, success, comfort, and recognition. Power, success, comfort, and recognition. He says, let me tell you the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of the world, four values dominate. Power, success, comfort, and recognition. In the kingdom of the world, you live for these Right, All of your life decisions are made on the basis of getting them. And we we see that those who don't have them as kind of the very bottom, the low in society. Jesus says every revolution inside the kingdom of the world is not really changing anything fundamental. It's not really revolutionizing anything. Every earthly revolt is about saying, I want power, I want recognition, I want the status. And I'm going to get it. Every revolution inside the kingdom of the world isn't really a revolution. It's just rearranging furniture. It's not really making a change. He says, let me give you a real revolution. The kingdom of God has a completely opposite, upside-down view of those values. Jesus says, "I'm I'm a king like, unlike any other king you've ever seen. He says, I don't care about recognition. I don't care about success. I don't care about comfort. I don't care about power. In fact, I'm giving them away. And I spend my time with the marginal, and I love the poor, and I heal the sick, and I feed the hungry. Anyone who transfers into my kingdom will be like me. How will we be like him? We won't, we won't need those things. We're not driven anymore by power and success and comfort and recognition. Oh, they're, I mean, they're great when you can get them. You know, oh, they're, they're great they're fine when you can get them, you can, we can use them, but, but you're not driven by them. Therefore, you don't make your life decisions anymore on the basis of them. How you spend your money, your time, you make, you make those decisions on the basis of what will benefit others. This revolution is about giving away your power and your success and your comfort and your recognition and changing the world that way. <clears throat> At the very end of Jesus' life, he was in captivity, and so was Barabbas. Barabbas. Uh, Barabbas was a revolutionary. He was uh, he was a, fr- a freedom fighter, a literal revolutionary. He was a violent dude. Um, the powers that be released Barabbas because they understood, rightfully so, that Barabbas was less of a threat than Jesus. If you let Barabbas go, you can stop him. right? The most, the most Barabbas will do is go out, round up another bunch of gorillas, and start another riot. You can always stop him. But how do you stop Jesus? They took him and nailed him to a cross. They took him and they buried him, rolled a stone over his grave and wiped their hands and said, that's one radical will never disturb us again. Three days later, Jesus pulled off one of the greatest political coups of all time. He got up out of the grave. The leader of a new world order. The king who has come to overthrow the existing order and to establish a new order that's not built on man. To put Barabbas to death ends his revolution. To put Jesus to death launches it. To take away power from Barabbas ends his revolution. To take away power from Jesus only increases it. And now we have a chance to be a part of the new order and go into the world that's enslaved, a world that's filled with hunger and poverty and racisms and phobias and hatred and all those things that are the work of the devil and proclaim liberation to the captives. Sight to the blind. We can go into the world and tell people who are bound mentally, spiritually, and physically. The liberator has come. A lot of people think Christians are idealistic. Uh, Let me tell you something. The thing that's great about the gospel is it humbles us. It makes you see you're a big part of the problem. If the gospel changes you, you will never see anybody else, anywhere else, as being the enemy. It makes you more able to cooperate with people, more able to find common cause with people. It actually makes you more politically relevant. Only self-righteousness makes you look at other people and say, you know, the people, those people over there are the bad guys. They're the real problem. For us to get this right, it requires we actually have to do something that Jesus did. Jesus did one thing specifically, one thing consistently, the model's the way for all of us. It isn't complicated. You don't have to write it down. It's very simple, but it's very transformational. The way, the way you keep your faith in front of your politics, the way you keep your faith filter first is to be like Jesus. To put people first and politics second. Because Jesus was for what was best for people. That's the kingdom of God. How can we best love people? Jesus always put what's best for people first. And that's our common ground. We can disagree on what's best for people, but we cannot and we dare not disagree that people are the most important. If there's a theme throughout the Gospels, it is, Jesus was for what was best for people. Jesus loved people and Jesus put people first. And the thing that drove Jesus crazy, you know, read the Gospels, the thing that drove Jesus crazy is when religious people used Law to hurt people. Jesus would say it over and over again. You had it backwards. God did not create people for the law. God created the law for people. So one day a group, a group comes to Jesus, and this is kind of my version of their question. They say, Jesus, tell us. You're a teacher. You claim to be close to God. Tell us. What's, what's most important? Do you remember what, how Jesus answers? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. Now, there's a lot of wiggle room here, right? Because that's all internal. In fact, I bet if you ask every single candidate who's running for president, hey, do you love God? The answer is yes. Who's going to say no, right? But Jesus keeps going, doesn't even pause. next word out of his mouth is, and. And the second is like it, love your neighbor. Jesus says, what's most important to me is that you love God, on the inside, and that you demonstrate it on the outside. The way that you treat the people made in the image of God is a reflection of your true love for God. What's most important is people. Now, I want you to just imagine with me for a second. Imagine this. Imagine if every person in the United States of America decided between now and November the 8th, I'm going to consistently love my neighbor as myself. I'm just going to do for others what I would want others to do for me. If every single person did that between now and the election, our nation would be different. Most of the laws would be irrelevant. Our country would be completely different. It would be a kingdom of God on display. It really wouldn't matter who the president was because, who, because what would happen in our country culturally would be so powerful. Because it all hinges on... Love for God on the inside and how I treat my neighbor on the outside. That's the essence of the kingdom of God. Here's something I just want you to think about as you think about how this looks in your life. Think about this. And you know this. Your behavior makes perfect sense to you, right? Like if somebody says, why'd you do that? You wouldn't go, I have no idea. Everybody's behavior makes perfect sense to him or her. Second part. Your political views make sense to you. If I were to say, why would you vote for him? Why would you support that? Because everybody's political views make perfect sense to him or her. So, here's the lesson. When you don't know how someone could do such a thing, when you don't know how someone could believe such a thing, when you don't know how somebody could support such a person, it's because there's something you don't know. And One of the best things you could do this political season one of the best things you could do is to help to kind of help keep your faith in front of your politics is is when you find some when you find yourself in one of those conversations contentious conversation or you overhear one and you're starting to get an attitude or you're tempted to quit minding your own business or you know you're beginning to lose respect for somebody here's what i would encourage you to do be a student not a critic because if you're a student, not a critic, you'll learn something. And if you don't think you need to learn something, you're arrogant and in, you're insecure. So if there's something in you that gets so amped up, especially over political issues, especially this season of the year, if you get so amped up that you can't learn anything new, that's a you problem. That's not a political problem. This is a season to learn. This this. is a this, And the, the way you learn is by deciding, I'll be a student first and I'll be a critic second. No, for some of you that's easy. For some of us, we just need to put it on our, our mirror in every car, you know. Because we, just, because we just go there so quickly because we're so amped up over political things. And also, just keep this in mind. Uh, much of what you hear from the media, from the candidates, is, is trying to scare us. So much of what we take in from the media is based in fear. And I'm not saying there aren't things that need addressed or aren't important, but we have to think critically about what we are being told. For example, last week, Kate and I were watching the news, and uh, uh, they were talking about some folks trying to pass a law in Iowa. And allowed, this law is to allow kids under 14 to use a handgun under adult supervision. And you can have your opinion on that. But what got me was what they said that we should be afraid of because of this law. And that was a militia of toddlers. A militia of toddlers is the scariest thing I've ever heard of. Right? Can you imagine roving bands of toddlers with handguns? It's terrifying. It made me want to drive to Iowa and vote. I don't even if that's allowed fear is the enemy of critical thinking it distorts emotions and perceptions and it often leads to poor decision one of the it's one of the biggest tools for political exploitation so we have to be knowledgeable and we have to be level-headed and peaceful confident folks if you're a christian jesus follower should be the, we should be the most confident not arrogant but confident and peaceful people. If you believe your eternity is all worked out, you should be confident. If you believe God knows your name, you should be confident. If you believe that you are a son or a daughter of God, regardless of where you live or what you have, there's a confidence and a peace that comes with that. You should be the most confident and the most curious people on the planet. We should be the learners above all learners because our God is a God of infinite wisdom. When does infinite wisdom run out? It doesn't run out. That means between now and the time that you take your last breath, you would, you would have just begun to grasp a bit of the wisdom of God. We should be intensely curious. We should never be threatened by science. Anytime science rolls something n- new out, Or discovers something new or changes its minds or changes its mind. Christians should just say, Oh, so so that's how he did it. So that's how he designed it. So that's how he created it to work. We shouldn't be threatened by science. We should be the most curious. We should be the most composed because we remember what we used to be. We remember what God has done in us and we remember what we didn't know. And we should be the most compassionate people in the room. And that doesn't mean we don't have an opinion. And that doesn't mean that we don't have a view. And that doesn't mean that we don't believe it passionately. But in terms of our response and in terms of our demeanor, we have an opportunity. Should you have an opinion? Yes. You should have an opinion, absolutely. Should you argue your point? Yes, when it's appropriate, absolutely. Because other people need to learn and other people need to discover what you know that they possibly don't. Should we make a point at the expense of influence? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus said that you, if you're a Jesus follower, you're the light of the world. That you're the salt of the earth. That we have been called to influence people in arenas where we think eternity is at stake. We've been called to influence people so that they can see the world as the world is. And to bring healing and restitution and to bring sons and daughters back together and husbands and wives I mean we 've been called to do something extraordinarily important, and the way we do that is through influence so So listen, never, never, never give up influence unnecessarily. don't give it up with your kids, don't give it up with your spouse don't give it up with your extended family, people at work, the people in your neighborhood. Never give up influence unnecessarily. And you should never, ever, ever give up influence over a political issue. Please don't give it up over something that doesn't really matter. Your vote matters. Okay, your vote counts. Your opinion, on the other hand, doesn't, they don't count that. How tragic to burn a bridge of influence over something that after the election, all the temperature goes down. And it kind of goes away. And then suddenly that guy at work, that lady at work, your neighbor, your family member, they have a need, they have a question, they can't ask you. They can't invite you in because you've lost influence over something that in the heat of the moment seemed like a really, really, really big deal. But a year later, years later, you can't even remember what the issue was. So please, 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 never give up influence unnecessarily because we as Christians have been called to influence our world. We never jeopardize relationship, especially over politics. And here's why. Because while we can disagree on what's best for people, and we can disagree on what's, what's best for people, we can't disagree that people are the most important. So during this political season, between now and November 8th, we have an opportunity. If we get this right, we'll have more influence. And if we get this right, we'll all learn something. So I want... So I want you to be intentional about putting your faith before politics. This is our country, and God shed His grace on thee. But we belong to a greater kingdom, and we demonstrate that by putting people first. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, let me pray for us and we'll take off. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us to live in a country where we can, we can even talk about this, where we have a, a where there's a a bloodless transition of power, either way it goes. And thank you for your kingdom, the revolution you bring, a a revolution that thrives on giving away power, giving away money, giving away status. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, you are a, a king who came poor in rags unrecognized. Because you're a king like that, it frees us to live sacrificially. How weird that being free from the kingdom of the world makes us more useful to the people of the world. We thank you for the counterintuitive, off the map answers to your, of your wise son, Jesus. Give us wisdom. Help us to get this right. Help us to especially get it right as a community of Christians. It's in Jesus name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen.